Hey folks, before we get to this week's episode, we wanted to invite you to a talk by Dr. David Field this Saturday on Facebook Live at 1 p.m. Central Time. David Field is going to be discussing change and loss, and during this discussion, he's going to explore the theological distinctions and the pastoral insights that we need to make gospel sense of how painful loss is at the heart of much-desired change. For more information about this event coming up this Saturday, May 30th, you can find a link in the show notes. Welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, James B. John, and Jeffrey Myers are going to discuss Acts chapter 3. Before we jump in, we'd like to invite you to sign up for our newsletter in Medias Race. This is a weekly email that comes out every Tuesday and gives you a digest of all things Theopolis, including a note from Peter Lightheart and our weekly YouTube videos a week ahead of time. And if you use that link down there in the show notes to sign up, we'll send you a free ebook from Peter Lightheart. We want to thank you so much for listening. We hope that you enjoy and are sharpened by this conversation. And here are Peter Lightheart, James B. John, Alistair Roberts, and Jeffrey Myers discussing Acts chapter 3. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with James B. John, Alistair Roberts, and Jeff Myers. Brian Motes, as usual, is listening in and making sure that the recording gets recorded and everything is smoothly edited and is sent out to you, our listening audience. Uh, Several weeks ago, we started a series on the book of Acts, and we're continuing that series today. Uh, We did an overview of Acts and uh, then looked at the first couple of chapters over a few weeks' time. This week and next, we're going to be looking at Acts chapters 3 and 4, which are connected chapters. We're splitting them up, but that's somewhat artificial because the action really continues from chapter 3 into chapter 4. Uh, and just to uh, set, set some context for this before we start looking at the details, obviously, Pentecost is a big event in chapter 2. The Spirit falls, the apostles begin to speak in tongues, and Peter makes his first public sermon, gives his first public sermon, which is in part an accusatory sermon against the Jews who put Jesus to death. And those uh, elements continue in the next couple of chapters. Peter gives a couple more speeches in chapters three and four. They're both proclamations of the gospel. He's talking about Jesus as the one who has now been exalted as Lord and Christ. The name of Jesus is the healing name and the saving name. Uh, But at the same time, Peter is accusing the Jews of rejecting the Prince of Life, of putting Jesus on the cross. And so, uh, with each speech, the tensions between the apostles and the Jewish leadership are increasing and intensifying. And that's part of the storyline that's going on in the early chapters of Acts as we move toward the climax of this thread is in chapter 7 when Stephen is stoned. Uh, and uh, the, the many of the Christians disperse from Jerusalem. But we already have that tension building in these early chapters. As Peter and John heal, then uh, many people respond with uh, approval. Many are amazed at what has happened. But then the Jewish leaders try to clamp down, and the conflict intensifies. To that point of growing persecution, Peter, the persecution in chapter 2 is quite limited, isn't it? It's basically just a form of mockery. Here, there's similar incidents going on, public proclamation of the gospel, there is conversion and so forth, but the opposition is 
is growing. It's now getting into the legal sphere and, and so forth. Mm-hmm. In, in these early chapters, everything is uh, centered on the temple. If I'm not mistaken, uh, beginning with Acts 2.46, uh, the temple is mentioned 12 times up through chapter 5. Um, and in, in the end, in chapter 5, it appears like um, the angels are going to give the apostles, basically, the temple. Uh, we're in Jerusalem here in these early chapters, uh, and we're, so we're following the pattern uh, that Jesus has told the apostles all the way back in uh, Luke 24 uh, about repentance and forgiveness of sins being offered to all the nations, uh, starting in Jerusalem. And then, of course, in Acts 1, Jerusalem, uh, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Um so that this this whole section here, uh, three through five, even three through seven, uh, is focused on Jerusalem. And they're going to move out of Jerusalem soon, but Jerusalem gets a chance to repent um, and receive forgiveness. And finally, in the end, when we get to seven, uh, Stephen's big accusation is that basically the Jews have turned the temple into a pagan temple, as if somehow they think God lives in um, temples made by human hands. So there's a critique of the temple going on here, and it starts right here in Acts 3, because you have uh, Peter and John going up to the temple, and it's the hour of prayer, and it's at the beautiful gate, and yet there's quite an ugly thing going on here. There's a man who's lame uh, and who's outside the gate who can't get in, and nothing's happening for him until uh, Peter and John come, and proclaim the name of Jesus. Hmm. I wonder if the mention of the ninth hour in verse one could emphasize some of those ideas, Jeff. That, according to Luke, is the time of Jesus' death, and it's also the time when the veil in the temple is torn. Hmm. So hmm. There, there might be that in mind. Hmm. Good point. Yeah, it rem- reminds me of the. Uh, uh, the I mean, there are a lot of things that remind us of healings of Jesus, Jesus healing people, and then facing the opposition of the Jews, uh, particularly in the Gospel of John, that happens repeatedly. But I, I think that, the uh, Jeff, your comment about uh, the man being uh, near to the temple but not being able to get inside reminds me of the man of Bethsaida who is at the pool but unable to get down to the pool unless somebody carries him. And by the time he's carried down there, the, the, healing, is, the healing opportunity is gone. So you have the same kind of exclusion. Is it, yeah, I hadn't thought of that as the the man being outside the temple and kind of excluded from the temple courts. So Peter Peter and John, interestingly, say to him, silver and gold we don't have to give to you. Well, that's temple talk, okay? The silver and gold of the temple is not going to help this guy. Hmm. Um, but the name of Jesus uh, is. Uh, and the other thing about this is, of course, the temple is the place where Yahweh's name is supposed to be resident and associated with. Uh, but now you have... Also in these chapters, this emphasis on the name, mm. the new name, the new uh, memorial name, the new name of uh, Jesus, who is, it's in his name that people are made whole, that people are redeemed and, and perfected. Um, so the temple is being marginalized here, uh, and the new temple, uh, which is, of course, the apostles and the, the, the Christian church who've received the Holy Spirit, remember in Acts 2, um, like just like the Sinai event, they're the place, they're the location where people can find 
the Lord can find forgiveness and restoration. It also seems to be playing off Old Testament narrative in Second Samuel chapter 5 with the defeat of Jerusalem and the Jebusites there. They said to David, you will not come and hear, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come and hear. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David, and David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind, who are hated by David's soul. Therefore it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. In the story of Matthew, Jesus goes into the temple after the triumphal entry and immediately it's the blind and the lame that meets that meet him there and he heals them. And there may be something similar taking place here. Hmm. Related to that and coming back to your point, Peter, about the John 5 incident, I was intrigued and this is a genuine question rather than one of those questions you ask because you've got a clever answer to it. Um, towards the end of chapter 4, I think it's verse 22, this man is said to have been uh, lame for more than 40 years. Um, or oh, sorry, he, he was more than 40 years old, it, it says, but then we know he was lame from birth. Um, that's then slightly different from the 38 years of the um, the guy in John's gospel. Does anyone have any thoughts on that? <laughs> I guess not. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my my only suggestion was if it's more than 40 years is meant to signify kind of now they're in in the promised land and in the fulfillment of various promises but not sure i necessarily want to make that contrast too much it isn't a aren't there alternative enumerations of the years in the wilderness 40 is a is a rough figure but isn't it the case that uh, there are pl- passages that talk about it uh, as being in a different length is it deuteronomy chapter two i'm trying to is think is that uh, 38 i think 38. it gives it as 38 it's the it's the period of wandering after the failure to enter in at kadesh bonia okay um so there's the 40 years but then 38 years of that is punishment in wandering. Ah, okay so that that helps to clarify things um well, it, I don't know if it clarifies these passages, but uh, so those these aren't alternative numbers. These are just counting different parts of that period, or the thirty-eight is a part of the 40, 40 year period. So, J- yeah. James, I wonder if yeah. I wonder if there were if there was a way to if there would be a way to tease out some parallel there that the thirty-eight years is somehow specifically alluding back to a period after a rebellion, and then the forty years is a, is the full full-time of wilderness exile. The other thing that makes me think of it, the, the 40 years it at least alludes to the to the wilderness wandering that connects in my mind to exile, which is a 70-year period, but uh, it's just the exile itself is described as being like a return to the wilderness. And the healing of the man has some overtones of return from exile. Uh, his walking and leaping and praising God, that, uh, that phrase that children sing about, I think it goes back to Isaiah 35 and the vision of this procession coming, the the lame and the blind coming out from Babylon and returning to the land with with Yahweh leading them back into the land. He 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 leads this ragtag bunch back into the land, a company of healed people. Uh, and so this this is kind of a elusive that return from exile, this entry or re-entry into the land, and the forty years would be another layer of that illusion. Yeah. There seems to be quite a few contact points with Isaiah 35 here, doesn't there? The story of Luke, if you 
zoom out a little bit, it begins in the wilderness with John the Baptist. And then here in Acts, we have the spirit outpoured from on high, the lame healed, leaping, praising God. And Isaiah 35 brings all of that together, beginning with that dry desert. And then the rain is poured out from on high. And then as the streams flow forth, there is that leaping and praising. And, and that, that seems present. Mm-hmm. Before we move on from the temple, I wondered if anybody had more thoughts about the specific places that were um, that are mentioned. There's a the beautiful gate that Jeff mentioned, but then uh, when everyone runs together, they come to the portico of Solomon in verse eleven. Uh, so it's the temple is in view, but it's specific locations within the temple. And I wonder if you had thoughts about that. I have some thoughts on the beautiful gate. I mean, traditionally from about the fifth century this was identified with uh, the shushan gate so on the east side of the temple mount and i think that must be right because it fits with the point which i want to draw out from <laughs> um there are quite a few contact points here I, I think with ezekiel some of which we've drawn out previously but one is the way it, at the start of ezekiel the spirit leaves the temple through the east gate and then at the climax of ezekiel um, the spirit returns through the East Gate, when the temple is glorified. And I wonder if here, if we think about Luke Acts as a whole, we have a similar thing at the climax of Luke. Jesus is leaving the temple each day through the East Gate to go to the Mount of Olives. Obviously, on the last of those occasions, he he doesn't return. He's arrested in the middle of the night. But here we've got, effectively, the spirit-filled peter and john uh, and they're healing this man and and then returning through the east gate and oh, i wonder if some of that could be in mind another resonance with ezekiel could be this slightly unusual mention in verse seven of, of ankles um mm. uh, his feet and his ankles were made strong the only old testament reference to ankles that i'm aware of at least is is in ezekiel when the water starts flowing and initially it's said to be ankle deep and i wonder if that portrays this as the um the start of much bigger things to come be curious to see whether there are references to other parts of people's legs moving upwards through the book of acts yeah i did look and i couldn't find any. (laughs) (laughs) that would be fun we should pay attention to that as we go (laughs) with i mean the with the background that jeff sketched earlier uh that you have a uh, the, the new temple is being built, and so the flow is coming from the place where the name dwells now, the name of Jesus, which is the company of the apostles. What, what about the portico of Solomon? Any any thoughts on the significance of that specific location in the temple? Well, I, I don't really, but it is fascinating to see. It's also mentioned in chapter 5, verse 12. Um and then the only other place I think it's mentioned in the New Testament is John 10, uh, right after Jesus gives his I am the Good Shepherd speech, uh, and that everybody's at the Feast of Dedication, and Jesus is walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon, uh, and the Jews gathered around him and asked him about things, and this is where he also talks about the Father and he being one. Um, but I'm not I, I'm trying, trying to figure out why that's mentioned here i i don't know they do seem to meet in um solomon's portico the early church in chapter five that seems to be a location that they're gathering in um the fact that they were continually in the temple 
blessing God at the end of Luke, it suggests that the temple may have been one of the buildings associated with the temple precinct, may have been their early meeting point. And so these events of Pentecost and what follow are immediately associated with the temple. Mm. Yeah, and the, the specific reference to Solomon, uh, the John 10 reference is intriguing because you have a discourse about shepherding, which is a royal image in the Bible, and then a reference to the portico of Solomon. Uh, do we have some notion of kingship that uh, Peter and uh, the, the, the company as a whole, if they're meeting in the temple, as Alistair suggests, at the portico of Solomon, then is that an indicator of a uh, of a royal company? Are Peter and John being portrayed here as uh, shepherd figures who are gathering up the the weak and the lame sheep of Israel uh, and are uh, acting in a kind of royal capacity now installed by the Spirit, installed as it were as rulers of Jerusalem? Is that is that the uh, import of it? Well, it it's certainly the case that there's this transfer. If you go through these chapters, there's this transfer of allegiance from, from the leaders, from the rulers, from the Sanhedrin, from the priest to the apostles. I mean, it's very clear when you're coming to the end of these chapters here where you're focused in Jerusalem and the temple that the people no longer fear the Jerusalem leaders, but they fear the apostles. Mm. Uh, and the apostles then get confirmed by the angel, by an angel in chapter 5 as the new uh, new priests, the new teachers, the new guardians go out, the angel says, and, and continue to proclaim everything in his name. That, that's always struck me as a kind of priestly emphasis that the uh, priesthood is being transferred to uh, the apostles, to the church. But there may also then, because of the Solomon reference, be um, also something about just them being the new rulers, the new, uh, the new princes. Uh, in Israel. Yeah. Do you think we should see any significance in the fact that it is Peter and John? Um, that particular pairing seems to be one that gets more attention than just the inner three of Peter, James, and mm -hmm. John. You see the inner three on various occasions, the Mount of Transfiguration, um, Gethsemane, the raising of Jairus's daughter, that sort of time. But those two, Peter and John, are played off against each other, particularly in the Gospel of John. And here... The fact that it's the two of them, I wonder whether we're supposed to see something in that. Well, I think of other pairings of uh, kind of double witnesses. Ultimately, in, in Revelation uh, 11, you've got two witnesses in the city, the doomed city. Uh, you have two witnesses at Sodom. You have double witness of uh, Moses and Aaron both come before Pharaoh. You have a double witness of Elijah and Elisha in succession uh, to the house of Ahab. And I wonder if you have a a kind of double witness of a uh, double witness idea. Well, one of the things I wanted to highlight, uh, I, I want to take some time to think about the, uh, the speech that Peter gives here. But um, one of the things uh, I wanted to highlight is that at the beginning, I talked about the conflict between the apostles and the Jewish leaders, which is certainly happening, but the people are kind of in the middle. I think Jeff was alluding to this with his uh, point about the transfer of, of loyalty. Which side are the people going to be on? You have the same conflict in the time of Jesus' ministry, where you have Jesus followed by huge multitudes, but then those multitudes are swayed, seem to be swayed at the end of his life during his trial by, uh, by the Jewish leaders. 
Uh, and you again have the, the people in the middle between the apostles and the Jewish leaders. The people are responding favorably to the apostles in general, but then uh, there's this reaction, this attempted suppression of the, of the apostles by the Jewish leaders. So it's a, it's really a three kind of a three the three parties to the conflict. It's not just two, or it's a conflict you could say between the apostles and the Jewish leaders for leadership of Israel, for leadership of the people. Uh, any thoughts on the speech that uh, the sermon that Peter gives here, starting in verse twelve? There's a lot of interesting phraseology here from Peter, and things that we don't really necessarily see explicitly again in the New Testament, if I'm, I'm not mistaken. So um, other, other than obviously the general point that Jesus is the fulfillment of um, all the promises to Abraham and, and, and the prophets, but look at verse 13, for example, um, glorified his child, Jesus, um, whom you delivered over and disowned in the presence of Pilate when they decided to release him, you disowned the holy and righteous one. Um, and then is also in verse 15, he's the uh, prince of life. He's the ruler unto life um, whom God raised from the dead. A lot of this is very specifically directed to these Jews and these Jewish leaders in Jerusalem um, and designed to, um, you know, to prick their hearts, to uh, prick their consciences, but it's it is surprising some of the uh, some of the language he uses here to describe Jesus. It's it's fascinating. Luke seems to be, and this continues some of those thoughts, Jeff. Luke seems to be very influenced in his gospel by Isaiah and by Isaiah fifty three in particular. I think that's something N. T. Wright has brought out in one of his books. You have especially the scene where the thief realizes that. Jesus is receiving the punishment which he rightly deserves, and yet Jesus is innocent, and then Jesus goes on to intercede on behalf of others. So lots of Isaiah 53 in there, and um, that seems also to be present here. I mean, I mean I'm thinking in particular in verse sort of 17 when Peter stresses the fact that they have acted in, in ignorance, and the rulers included, which seems an odd detail but it's exactly the scene portrayed in isaiah mm. 53 the reaction of, of the jews there is is a sincere one in isaiah 53 we, we thought he was mm -hmm. smitten by god you know we thought he was um this was proof positive that he, he wasn't the messiah and so forth and so they really did sin in ignorance and verse 18 obviously then gives the, the rationale, um, what God's side of the story is, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, um, he thus fulfilled that the Christ would suffer. Mm. That's the same language that Paul uses in Acts 17 when he's on Mars Hill to describe the ignorance that God has allowed to, uh, to reign among the Gentiles. So in some sense, both Israel and uh, the nations and the Gentile nations are on par here, mm. They're both without knowledge, without both ignorant. And, and that seems to be the basis for Peter's exhortation in verse 19. They acted in ignorance and therefore there's still time to repent their sins. And it seems like specifically the sins that he's just enumerated of disowning Jesus, their sins can be wiped away and times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. So there seems to be some, because it's a sin of inadvertence, it's a sin of ignorance. 
there's a chance for them to be to repent and be delivered from it. And there is a very favorable presentation of them, and um, certainly when we contrast it with what we find in Christ's condemnation of Jerusalem, they're not described as the sons of those who killed the prophets. They are the sons of the prophets. Um, there is the expectation that they will respond positively to this. The Christ has been appointed for them. Um, the times of refreshing are expected in some sense as a response to this. Um, and the way that Peter presents it to them, there is the assumption of a positive response at this stage. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alistair, do you, do you find, and uh, also others, this verse 17 acted in ignorance. I mean, when you read the gospel stories, it doesn't appear like they're ignorant of who Jesus is. And you mentioned uh, Matthew 23 and 24, where Jesus castigates the uh, Pharisees and scribes. But, you know, it, in the end, you know, they they know he's the king, or at least he said he's the king. So it's always been odd to me in preaching on this, because at some points you're like, when you preach on this, you, you want to say, the leaders of Israel kind of knew what they were doing. They were killing their Messiah. And then Peter comes along here and says, well, maybe you didn't know entirely exa- what you were doing. I, I guess that's the way I interpret it. Um, you had some idea, but you had no idea how significant this man, this person was. What do you all do with that? I would relate it to Jesus' uh sort of messianic secret approach within the Gospels, where there is a suspension of knowledge on certain fronts. The full revelation doesn't occur until after the resurrection, when it becomes clear exactly who this one was through his vindication. Beyond that, I would also think about the way that he, when challenged by the leaders and they claim that he's casting out demons by the prince of the demons, he talks about blasphemy against the Son of Man being forgiven, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit not being forgiven. And within Luke, I think, especially as we get into Stephen's speech, there is a two-visitation model, um, where the first visitation, as in the case of Joseph and Moses, is rejected, but then there's a second visitation. If that is rejected, then it's destruction. Um, But there is real hope that they will respond to the message of the Holy Spirit through the church. Mm. There's a slight tension as the book progresses, isn't there, between exactly what is expected in on Israel's behalf. It, it's not easy as far as I can see to draw a line and say, you know, at, at, at this stage, Israel is is doomed and it's assumed that they won't um, repent and, and respond in any way. And there, there does seem to be a slight aspect of, of conflict to it. And even this term, times of refreshing, I, I spent a small amount of time looking into it. I mean, that word refreshing in its exact form, it's actually only uh, occurs here in the New Testament once and, and in the Old Testament to describe the um, respite from the plagues after um, Pharaoh sort of relents on one occasion. And I wonder if it sort of, uh, yeah, it does signify good things, but at the same time sort of foreshadows that what's going to happen is, is more of a respite mm. than a full, a full refreshing. Mm. There definitely is this tension all through Acts, and it begins in Acts 1, remember, when uh, the disciples, the apostles asked Jesus, you know, are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And he says, it's not for you to know times and seasons. It doesn't appear like the apostles are ready to hear 
Well, of course, obviously Jesus knew what was going to happen, but the apostles don't. And so there's this uh, anticipation throughout the book of Acts that Israel is going at some point to respond in a positive way. And yet we know they don't. In the end, in Acts 28, even Paul, who had some high hopes, uh, realizes that uh, there's nothing more that he can do. So that Jerusalem and the Jews, the Jerusalem doesn't become Sodom. It doesn't become Egypt until, as Alistair said, after all these opportunities for a second chance are given to them. But once the people, uh, the people of God, the church flees out of Sodom, out of Egypt, out of Jerusalem, then they're given over to destruction. But the apostles aren't ready to hear that yet. Not until this history plays out, this 40 years of, uh, of opportunity of testing plays out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that in my mind, it goes back, understanding the dynamics of the situation goes back to the comment I made about the role of the people themselves and the multitude. Because each time Peter speaks, there's another few thousand that are, want to be, that are part of the church. And again, what's happening is a conflict between the Jewish leaders and the apostles over the leadership and the future of Israel but many of the Jews get on board the Jesus train, as it were, before the, during those opportunities, while, while there's still an opening, while that window of opportunity is still there, they're getting reconciled to Jesus. Peter says at the end of the chapter, for you first, God raised up his servant. And I think, you know, for you Jews, to the Jew first and also to the Greeks, that's the force of that, I think. Uh, Jesus was raised in order to restore Israel, and that is actually what's happening through the course of Acts, even though the leaders of Israel, many of them are hardening themselves and resisting, uh, but you still have this flow away from the uh, away from the old Israel into the new. It does raise an interesting question if someone wants to write an alternate history of the book of Acts, um, because this appears, I mean, this is obviously a real um, a genuine offer to the Israel. What would have happened if the leaders would have repented? What would have happened? How would uh, Israel have been differently positioned in the world if they actually responded in a positive way? Um, so someone's got to write that alternate history and we're going to learn what, what would happen. <laughs> I find it striking that Peter's challenge to the Jews focuses upon their denial of the Christ. Um, it's that particular word, which is the same one used of his own sin, um, that they denied the Christ at that point where they, um, even though Pilate wanted to set him free, they denied him then, and they denied him by wanting a murderer to be released instead of him. Um, and it seems just as God's grace is going to come to them first. God's grace has come to Peter first. Peter's denial is an example for Israel that if Peter denied and was forgiven, they denied and they can also be forgiven. Right. And, and you, have, you have the same kind of embodiment of hope in Paul's experience. Turns from persecutor into apostle, which is a model for what can happen to the Jews who have been persecuting the apostles. Well, uh what I said earlier, I think, is is true here that the name uh, of Jesus occurs all through this these uh, early chapters. And, of course, Yahweh, the memorial name 
that the Israelites were to call out, that the Lord would hear and, and save and deliver them, uh, was associated with the temple. Uh, and now you have that name, um, the, the memorial name, the, the, the name of, of deliverance, salvation, uh, being Jesus. And that's, that becomes, that's just all over here. It's, it's going to, it's going to occur in chapter four again. It's going to occur in five. It's the significance of the name of Jesus, the Messiah, um, is huge here for, uh, this story. Uh, the name is significant. Not only it's, it's, uh, in contrast to the name that dwells in the temple or associated with that, but then the name is also the source of, uh, healing, the source of life. It's not by Peter's power, John's power, that they uh, brought this man, strengthened him. It's by the power of the name of Jesus. Jesus' name is the only name by which anyone can be saved. And anyone who wants to be saved needs to call on that name. As Peter said in, uh, in his Pentecost sermon, Jesus has been made Lord and Christ. He quoted from Joel 2, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And now that name is identified as the name of Jesus saved from the lameness that the man has suffered for his entire life, saved from the sin of disowning Jesus, denying Jesus, saved from the doom that's to come. Jesus is the name that brings um, salvation in all of those different forms. It's spoken of in quite an interesting way, isn't it? In that actually Jesus's name is said to have causal power. His name has made this man strong. I can't find the references off hand, but there are various places in the Old Testament where the name of Yahweh is attributed the same causal power. And you even get phrases such as, you know, I will send my name before you. And there does seem to be uh, 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 an endorsement of Jesus's deity here. Another nudge in the same direction might be in verse 14. Um, you have denied the holy and, and the righteous one. The, Peter's whole talk, I think, is full of Isaiah-like languages, the bl language, the blotting out of sins, for instance, the points we've mentioned al already. And the Holy One is really one of Isaiah's chosen terms for, for Yahweh. And I, I suspect that there is that theological idea in here that Jesus is that literal embodiment of Yahweh. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Mm -hmm.